1: I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. Driving while female is what the police charge sheet read when Manal al-Sharif was arrested. In 2011, in Saudi Arabia, a woman driving a car was considered a crime. Infuriated by the lack of rights for women in her country, Manal set out to change things, and in doing so, risked her liberty and her family. Her arrest for Driving While Female received worldwide attention. It highlighted just how few rights women in Saudi Arabia have and set Manal on a path to further activism. Her book, Daring to Drive, A Saudi Woman's Awakening, is a gripping account of her life and how she unexpectedly became a human rights campaigner. But she's done so much more. She is an incredibly accomplished woman in the world of technology and has been listed as one of Forbes' top 50 women in tech and by Newsweek as one of the 10 tech revolutionaries in the world. Manal, it's an honour to be speaking with you. Thank you for joining the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me. The honour is all
1: mine. Manal, a vast majority of the experiences you had as a child and young woman growing up in Saudi Arabia would seem almost impossible to fathom to many of our listeners. Are you able to explain a bit what life was like for you as you were growing up? I was just like any other girl. We were not that connected with the
2: news, with the religious establishment. We were just children. I wanted to be a novelist, a physicist, a scientist. I wanted to be a journalist. I remember I wanted to be a journalist. And in Saudi Arabia, women can leave the house. But I didn't think too much of the things they couldn't do, like riding a bike, playing sport or leaving the house. I didn't even know these were taken away from me. I focused so much on the things I could do. I loved books. I loved readings. And reading really leads to writing. So I would sit down and create this fictional world, solving crimes with the police and uh, saving humanity and um, making new inventions. I I think it was until I was 12 when I started realising the things that's been taken away from me when I couldn't ride my brother's bike when I turned 12. My mom was so afraid that I lose my virginity. I didn't understand that. She said, you will be ruined. And she didn't explain to me what's ruined, like like my doll that I can't, when it breaks, that I can't can't play with it. No one explained to me. But slowly, a lot of things were taken away from me. Like I had to cover my face. I stopped talking to my cousins. And I love football. And by the way, Australia and Saudi are playing next month for the qualifications for the World Cup. So I get so excited about, playing sports, and that was taken away from me. And I think that's when I started realizing why my brother was allowed to do a lot of things and I wasn't allowed. So my my face was taken from me, my voice, because you can't speak when you are outside. But the worst part was my name was taken away from me because mom stopped calling me with my name when I became tween. Mom, she started calling me with my brother's name in public. And you really feel invisible because it's a shame to mention someone's a female name. So you're always called mother of or daughter of, but it, they don't call you with your name. There were good parts, there were painful parts growing up in Saudi Arabia
1: as a child. It's really interesting that you felt a sense of freedom as a child, but obviously as an adolescent became conscious of the things that were different for you because you were a girl. But it sounds like even in that context, you were aiming high in terms of your future career. I mean, to want to be a physicist or a journalist or whatever. So many people, I think, would assume that if you live in an environment where women are visibly treated so differently, that that would be the death of ambition, that you wouldn't think big about your own future. Can you talk a little bit about how you felt the freedom to dream such big dreams, even living in that context? Two things. My mom, she believed in education
2: and I believe in education for every woman. It really opens the mind. I would sneak in to my sister's room and take her books. She's older than me. So I'm not supposed to read her books, but I was so thirsty to reading. One of the books that I read when I when I was a teen that really changed my life was Little Woman and Jo, Josephine Marsh, she was my hero. Watching movies, and we didn't have we only had two channels. Channel two in Saudi Arabia was in English. We had a window to see other societies, how they're living. Through TV, you would think it's fiction. I'm born 79 and a movie came with a, a woman heroine, Sigoni Weaver, alien. Alien. She was <laughs> she was my hero as like, oh, women can also save the world. So looking at these women as a child, I thought, yeah, I can do these things. Of course not fighting aliens, but fighting at least my own aliens. But also we went through in our teenage years, because I was born in 79, and it was the era of the awakening. It was a very troubled time for Saudi Arabia and the Muslim world, where radicalism was on the rise because of the hostile environment against Muslims, whether in Palestine, Chechnya, Afghanistan, Bosnia. So I went through that conspiracy theory that Islam is under attack and we have to be good Muslims, and those are all the enemies. So that's the time where I was picked up with radicalism because I read a lot. And the only books that were available for me, it was the radical books. And it was actually given to us for free. Imagine, oh my God, someone giving me a book for free. I don't have to save to buy the book. And those books were really radicalizing. And we had the cassettes. So from that girl who loves drawing, who loves to play sports with her male cousins, of course, I was the only girl in the football team, to someone who is completely living in isolation from the rest of the world and thinking the world is against me. So I believed in covering my face. It didn't bother me anymore. And I started burning my drawings that have people faces because they told us it's forbidden in Islam. And my brother, I would give him hard time when he listened to music. So he'd always have his Walkman and he would just hide his music cassettes. And one time I had to just have an intervention with my brother where I took all his cassettes and just burned it in the oven, just melted it in the oven. I went that far in my radicalism years. I was giving that idea that we were under attack and I was cornered and that was my defense mechanism. Until I went to college and everything changed. I studied computer science and we got the internet in Saudi Arabia. And it was truly my first window to the outside world. But I finally can question my belief system, all the things, They told me, these are answers you can't question. But I had so many questions no one could answer. And that was the time. And Saudi Arabia, it took them years. In Australia, the internet came here in 89. In Australia, the internet. Saudi Arabia, it's 99. So it took us 10 years to have the internet. And when the internet came, it was heavily censored. And that's when I learned how to hack things. I didn't know the name was hacking. I would just bypass all the censorship. Because I was so thirsty. I wanted to read. And mom's family lived in Egypt. So if you go and visit them, I would see women driving. I would see women not covering their face. And I would question like the two worlds, and both are Muslim countries. But the best thing about visiting mom's family, it was smuggling books back to Saudi Arabia. So as a teenager, leaving my radicalism years, I read books in philosophy. I read all these books in, from uh, the Greeks. So it wasn't only the radical books that I was giving, giving me one part of the story and I couldn't think for myself. So I think the internet and my education as a computer scientist was the window that opened my mind and, and saved me, I'd say, from radicalism.
1: And let's talk a little bit about your choice of computer science. So, I mean, it's just fascinating that your childhood and your adolescence was this uh, mix of elements. I mean, uh, little women, Sigourney Weaver fighting aliens, obviously <laughs> both American, American author and uh, Hollywood, and then this radicalising influence, uh, you know, that the Muslim world was under attack. And yet in the midst of all of those sort of cross-cultural influences, you choose computer science. And right around the world, even today, disproportionately, girls do not choose computer science or science, technology, engineering, math subjects. Why computer science compared with anything else that you could have picked? And how did you reconcile The journey of going to college and clearly wanting to have a career as a computer scientist with the other influences on you about women's roles? Amazing question, because in Saudi Arabia, at the time
2: I was studying, you can only be a teacher or work in healthcare. You have no other job for you, because Saudi Arabia, there is a gender apartheid. Men and women can't mix anywhere, public or even private houses. If it's the man that you could get married to, so that man is a foreigner to you. You can't talk to them, see them or do work with them. I actually, the first major I, when I applied for school, my major actually was physics because I wanted to be a physicist. I remember when I walked in the class, there were only seven girls and I'm like, okay, I made the wrong choice, although I love physics. And I remember all my friends were applying. There was an accepting exam for computer science. I never had a computer in my life. I've never seen a computer in my life. It was actually in 99 when I applied for my computers. And I'm like, actually, there is something about computer science that I want to. I've never seen computer. And in the world, science, I just love science. And I'm going to be a scientist. So I couldn't be a scientist in a lab, but I can be a scientist in a computer lab. And I applied because I had high GPA. They, got, they accepted me without even the exam, to pass the exam. And I was one of the top in the university when I graduated. But the problem is we didn't have jobs for me. Saudi Arabia, 65% of computer science graduates are women. It's just huge because Saudi Arabia is a country where they pay for your education. And not only they pay for your education, they actually pay you. To finish your education. So I used to get salary from the government to do my bachelor. And if I would do my master and my PhD, I would still get higher salary. Saudi Arabia is one of the highest educated nations in the world. Unfortunately, it's a, an absolute monarchy. So there are no civil rights or political rights. But people are highly educated. And you didn't pay taxes. And that makes you free when you graduate to do whatever you want. You don't have debt to pay back to the government. And we studied... Uh, Our books were all the American curriculum, so they were all in English, and that's what introduced me to the English language. When I graduated from computer science, because there were no jobs for me, Aramco, which is the oil company in Saudi Arabia, the national oil company, which is the largest oil company in the world, or the largest producer of oil in the world, they were the only company in all of Saudi Arabia that allowed women to work side by side with men. And I knew only about it through one of my friends who came all the way from Eastern Province, which is two hours flight. And I said, can I apply as a summer student because I'm graduating? She said, definitely. I applied. I really loved it. And I got the job there. But it it was another story because my dad had to give me permission, couldn't live in the company compound. It was another struggle to go and work as a woman without a man. Saudi Arabia, every woman growing up, every woman is a minor from the time she's born to the time she is, she's dead. So there is a man guardian, and this man guardian is on, he has to take all decisions on her behalf. And that guardian was my father. I had to go through all these struggles with my father to convince him to give me, to to allow me to apply for my ID, when women were allowed to give an ID, or to convince him to apply for computer science in another city or apply for a job in another city. It was a big struggle because when you're 18, you're not adult. You still might have to take permission from the man in your life.
1: It's incredible to think about that, you know, across all of your life in Saudi Arabia that you needed to have those kind of permissions, that you you never got to a state that your legal status was other than as what we would associate with a child where, of course, yes. we accept that an adult has to make legal decisions for a child but that an adult woman retains that status. And, of course, another implication of that is that a woman can't be out in public unless she is accompanied by a male guardian. And you talk about your work at Aramco. So you're working for this oil company, you've got your computer science qualification, and yet you write about the challenges of being there and particularly on your very first day at work uh, that you really found it hard to get to the workplace. You say in your book... That you tried to take the company bus, but you were denied that because you weren't with a male guardian. You couldn't walk because you couldn't walk unaccompanied. You couldn't get a private car and drive a private car because women couldn't drive. And you say, at that moment, I truly understood what it meant to be a Saudi woman. It meant being confronted with every possible kind of obstacle and discrimination. It meant being told that if you want to race with men, you have to do it with your hands and legs cut off. I started to wish I had been born somewhere, anywhere else. Can you talk about that moment, that experience, the first day at work? There is a misconception that women in Saudi Arabia can be
2: in public without a man. So she can be in public without a man, she can walk in the street without a man. But it's thrown at. I'd say. She would need to have the man permission to leave the house. And if you have a good man in your life, your life is beautiful because you don't need to take these permissions. But if you have someone who is controlling, then your life is hell. And that's, unfortunately, most of men take advantage of those powers given to them, unchecked powers given to them by society and by law, legally. So when I arrived to Saudi Aramco, it's built by Americans. Women can work with men. I was Deeply shocked to walk when I came from the airport and we passed the gates. So it's a gated community with the offices and the residents. Women were not allowed to live there. So I was not allowed to live in that gated community. But uh, what shocked me seeing women on bikes. I'm like, this is the first thing I'm going to do. And also I saw women driving and there were swimming pools and there were women just walking freely in the street. I come from a city where women have to cover their face. You can't see a woman in Mecca. Her face is uncovered. So for me, it was just like, is this Saudi Arabia? Am I still in the same country? That was the biggest shock for me. But working in the office with men, and I was the only woman for 10 years working in the cyber team, the discrimination was really clear. So I do the same jobs they do, but I did—I I wasn't allowed to attend the training in the city because men and women can be in the same place. I couldn't live in the compound that the company built for its employees because it was a woman. A Saudi woman. If I'm a foreigner woman or a woman expat, we call them in Aramco, I could live there. And outside, the government didn't allow me to rent. I couldn't stay in a hotel. I couldn't find a place. So I was employed, but I was homeless. That was so frustrating. And I couldn't tell my family because my family would ask me to go back home. Unfortunately, I started my career with a fraud. With fraud, I had a friend. Her dad came. And there's something called family card with the man, the guardian, has all the women in his family as he's their guardian. So we had to go to the police and we had to write a pledge promising that we're going to be good girls living in this apartment that we are renting. And he had to tell the police that I was his daughter. Because you had to. There was no other way. I come from a very modest family and I was the first child to graduate and have a job. And I wanted to lift my family from poverty and, and support mom and dad. Every time they build a wall in front of me, I'll build a ladder and I'll climb over that wall because you can't break the wall. You have to find all these, you know, jumping hoops. Aramco gave me something very important in my life, and I really appreciate it for them. They gave me the option that I I didn't have outside to practice my career. Most of my friends who graduated from computer science couldn't use their degree. I was really lucky to use my degree. It's really difficult to be a woman in an all-male environment and not try to tune down a lot of things and think and question. Virginia Woolf, she calls it killing the angel in the room. Every woman has an angel telling her just like, be charming, smile, try not to say these things. And our manager told me this beautiful thing. He said, Manan, we trust you. We know how smart you are. You have the choice because we're giving you all of these opportunities. You choose to be seen as a girl or as the engineer, you choose. So I chose the engineer. I stopped thinking that like I'm a girl. So it was just this amazing feeling that I'm respected here. I'm working with Saudi men. They listened to me. I remember I was leading teams with people way older than me, lawyers, auditors, and outside IT. And they would sit down and listen. And that was just amazing. And the president of the company, Abdullah Jumah, that man was just the most humble leader I've seen in my life. I had lunch with him, a business lunch once in a big conference that we, Aramco hosted. And I sat next to him and I said, such an honor sitting next to you. And he said, no, 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 the honor is mine. And he handed me the hummus. And I was just like, this is a true leader. And I'm like, now I have this opportunity. I have this few minutes sitting next to one of the most powerful men in the world. What should I say? And I said, Abu Abdullah, Abu Munther." And you always call someone in, in, in Arabic culture with their son's names or kids' names. And I said, you know that I'm an engineer here and I've been working for seven years and I can't live in the compound. I'm a single mom recently. I'm a divorced mom recently. And I have a kid I'm really struggling and I feel like it's really unfair for us as women. So imagine you're having lunch with the president of your company and that's the first thing you come. I said, I feel there are a lot of, and I didn't even know the word discrimination at that time. I feel it's a lot of policies that are in my face. Like He said, I acknowledge and I know and we're working on it. And I just loved that the power of speaking up. Sometimes those leaders don't even know what we women go through until someone brings it to them.
1: Well, that was certainly a moment of courage, absolutely. Can you explain to us your personal circumstances at that time? You had met your husband at work, hadn't you? Yes. And had your first child. Yes. So can you tell us about that?
2: When I got my job, I called one of my friends back home in, in Jitta, where I went to school. Because she was so pessimistic. She's like, Oh, none of us will have a job. And and don't even dream to have a job. it will be just sitting home. And I called her. It was the first one I called her. And I said, Guess what? I had a job in Aramco. And she said, And you're working with men? You know you never get married. That was her answer to me. So I never talked to her again because she was so negative and I didn't need that energy in my life. The irony is that I meet my husband at work. The problem with someone being so young, twenty-three. My family were not around me. And when I started seeing him, like we started talking in the office. And that's a no-no in Saudi Arabia. You don't talk to guys. Like it's work and that's it. And I did the forbidden thing. I saw him outside work. And Saudi Arabia, we don't date. And if you date, and yet it's found out, like the religious police could arrest you both and put you in jail. So I was risking a lot to, by seeing him. The problem is I knew that it's not going to work. He wanted me to leave my job. He wanted me to cover my face because at that time it took me so long to remove the face covering after, of course, reading and when I was in college. So I was thinking, like, if I want to be with this man, I have to go backward. The society is putting so much pressure on him. It's not out of religion. It's out of being in a culture that's very conservative. And people judge the man of how his women are modest or not. And I was very young and foolish because people started talking in the office that, oh, Manal, and they're talking. So kind of it's just like my good girl. Like I have to prove that I'm a good girl and a modest girl. I'm a good Muslim. So I insisted even with all the signs, the red flags that it's not going to work out. I insisted to reclaim my reputation. And that's something I would tell my younger self is you need to have someone who's mature in your life to really when you do all these stupid things, just to wake you up and say, you know, this is not good for you. And the other thing is not to care about what people think of us. And if I look back at all the things I've done, and I regret today, because I was so concerned what people think of me, proving myself. I'm 42 now. I can less listen about proving myself to anyone. <laughs> I do what I want to do. We put so much pressure on us. And at that age, where we're fragile, we're looking for a way out. That's the time I think we do need people like you. We do need people in our families and our surroundings, women. We can trust and talk to and tell them these things we're embarrassed of. So we got married. We had a child. Unfortunately, it was very clear that it's not working. And that's when I left. But the problem is when you get married, the guardianship moved from your father to your husband. And now all the liberties I had to fight badly to take away when I was, my father was my guardian. Now it was all taken away from me. A few years later, I had to ask for a divorce. And thankfully, a woman can divorce herself in Saudi Arabia, So It's actually easy in Saudi Arabia to divorce herself. And I had my child with me. And I was the happiest ever.
1: Well, against, against that background of being the happiest ever, you decided to start a campaign, hashtag women to drive, and you decided to get in a car and to drive yourself. Can you explain what led you to that moment? You'd obviously shown great courage to navigate your life the way that you had, but to do something as inflammatory in the context as that, you must have known that the reaction would be enormous. What took you to that moment? It was the Arab Spring in 2011, and I saw the power of social media. So imagine you're in a country
2: where there's the the government, and that's not elected by the people, that controls what you hear and what you read. And people didn't have a voice, especially women. I saw the January 25th day, and I saw all these activists in Egypt using social media effectively. They used Facebook, but in Saudi Arabia, Twitter was the big thing. It was not Facebook. I was struggling so much after coming from the United States, and I had a driver's license. I had a car that I paid in for for three years, and I was a divorced mother, And I couldn't drive my car. You can't walk. We don't have pedestrian cities. You can ride a bike. So you are still dependent on a man to drive this car. One day, I almost got kidnapped because I couldn't find a car to take me back home. And by this time, I was living in the residential compound, thankfully. So I would drive inside the residential compound, but not in the city. My son's school, my son's hospital, everything was in the city. One of my colleagues that I was ranting to, like, and was so frustrated, he said, actually, there's no law prevent you from driving. You can just go out and drive if you want in the city. And that hit me. And I'm like, no, you're kidding me. So why women don't drive? Why we're the last country on earth where women don't drive? He sent me the code of the traffic police. And there's not a single word that specifies the gender of the person who is eligible or she's eligible to get the driver license. And that was ignited the movement, started an event on Facebook. We had almost 120,000 women joining that event. And we had to do exactly what Egyptian activists did we called a day of action. If you are a woman we ha- with a driver license, of course, from overseas, we call you to practice your right and go out in June 17 and drive. But now, what happened is women were so scared because this didn't happen before. In 1990, a group of 47 women took 12 cars and drove in the streets of Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia. They were stopped, they were banned from driving. Their cars were confiscated. They were fired from their jobs, and they were college professors. They were not just teenagers. They were not just kids. They were women who are mature adults, mothers. Their names, their house phone numbers at that time, we didn't have mobile numbers, were printed on brochures or leaflets. And terrible things were told about these women. They're Westernized. They want to corrupt this society. Those are not Saudi women. Those are foreigners, whatever. And those were handed in the public spaces when you go to the mosque or when you are in the school. And that was really shocking because as kids, that was imprinted and forgotten because the government, they really, it was a big thing. And the government, that they had to, the announcer came on TV and said, women are not allowed to this, shut up now. And they didn't allow anyone to talk about it in the media. So from 1990 to 2011, that's 21 years. Not a single thing was mentioned anywhere. You can't talk about women driving. It was a taboo. And imagine now you have social media and you, can, you have a voice and you say, we're driving. Women were terrified to drive and I had to lead by example. So I did drive. I asked my friend to, she recorded me with my iPhone and I posted it on YouTube. And YouTube in Saudi Arabia is the most used social media. Actually, Saudi is consume more video YouTube than Brazil and the U.S. 90 million views per day in Saudi Arabia. And that's in 2011. I don't know the numbers now. But I knew that was the place for me to speak up. And it was terrifying because I used my name and my face. I, I work in Aramco, which is the biggest company in the country. And I had no clue that it will reach 700,000 views. And it was trending worldwide, including in Australia. I remember one of the comments in Australia, a guy here, and he said, I have no clue why everyone is watching this video is just a woman driving. <laughs> and it's just so funny that the world didn't understand why the riot, why people were angry. And that's when I drove again. I asked my brother to pass by a police car. This time I was in his car and I was arrested. I was released after after interrogation. And then I was arrest, arrested again and sent to jail for driving while female. When I was in jail, I had the both sides, the villain and the hero, a lot of women We're supporting quietly, anonymous names. and A lot of people were so angry because it's just like, how dare you? How dare you? This is our country. You are creating so much disruption. But the Arab Spring made people really join the part of the network, join these social media and engage. We were so frustrated. A lot of people were speaking up. When I I had to write a piece of paper when my sister-in-law came to visit me in jail, and on the piece of paper, I wrote to her, ask dad to meet the king. Because no one knew that who put me in jail. Like no one knew who released the orders to put me in jail. And it wasn't the king. And my sister-in-law, she smuggled that piece of paper and she gave it to dad. And dad had to fly from where I was in jail in Damam to back to Jeddah, where the king. And he went to the royal palace and he asked to meet the king. And he met him that second. He went there. It takes months to meet the king, to take appointment with the king. Dad met him in the afternoon, 5 p.m. my release came from the king himself. So all these people who keep telling me that you're such a superficial, you're such a, a child. If it's stupid, right, why there was so much anger? Why it took the king of Saudi Arabia to give me a pardon to leave jail if it's that small? Women's rights are not small. We fight really badly and they fought us back, fight us back when we speak up. So I think that was one of the things that really changed my life. And June 17, when it came, I was so scared that women wouldn't drive on that day. I had to sign a lot of papers promising never to talk or campaign again when I left jail. But I, I, I didn't stop. <laughs> I, I, I stayed quiet for a few months, but then I'm like, I can't. I have to talk. Women went out and drove. On June 17, dozens of women went out and posted the video. And that fear was broken finally. That monster they created for us was just a piece of paper that we pushed. And we continued campaigning. A lot of women joined. And it wasn't me. It was a lot of amazing women who joined. Wajih al is one of the women, I would say. Aziz al Yusuf, Iman al-Nafjan, Lujain al And I was lucky enough when the royal decree came in 2018, that I wasn't in Saudi Arabia at that time. I
1: celebrated with all the women. Do you remember the day we got the the right... In June 2018, I think we should just explain, in June 2018, finally, 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 after all of this women's campaigning, of which you were such a major part, uh, the government lifted the ban on women driving. So, yes, I do remember that. How did you feel that day? Oh, I guess I felt... Pleased, delighted that there had been that advance, but it's a big thing, the right to drive. It's an emblematic thing, but it's only the start of what needs to change. But I just love this. You felt happy for us.
2: Yes, I did. That was one of the best days of my life. I was in Sydney. Even my neighbours were telling me, congratulations. Even people I didn't know were telling me congratulations when they know I'm a Saudi woman. They didn't even know my background. They just, oh, you're Saudi. Oh my God, congratulations. That feeling was immense because I felt that the fight for women's rights rights anywhere in the world contribute to women's rights everywhere in the world. So you could look to any woman in the world and you see what she's doing and you get inspired. And you say, I can do it. And I think that's the day that I realized how powerful women are. Because all the group, the whole movement, Women to Drive movement, or every single woman who participated in the campaign were arrested and put in jail. The last one just was released in June this year. So it was a big fight. And I'm living here in a self-imposed exile. I didn't see my son since January 2018. So I knew that I would to win a war, I would lose battles. I just didn't know I would lose a battle like my son custody. But for me... It is very important to know that nothing is giving for us for free as women, and whenever women really don't exercise their rights, and I say it with my British friends, and I say, you know the suffragette movement, you know the lady who threw herself in front of the the King horse. No, I'm like you're British. I can't believe you're British. You have to learn the history of women's rights in your country, especially people who are not politically engaged or. They hate the word feminism. And I, I don't care if I call myself feminist. I call myself a woman who lived in patriarchal societies, intergenerational traumas that women went through for thousands of years that we have to face. And the only solidarity for us is to know what other women are doing.
1: The price you paid was a huge one. So you left your country, you came to Australia, uh, you were not able to bring your son with you. When you got to Australia, what was it like? What did you think, having come from Saudi Arabia? What was that, the first few months, your first experiences of Australia, how did that all feel? I couldn't believe how beautiful
2: Sydney, I live in Sydney. I couldn't believe you can have the mountain, the
1: national parks,
2: the reserves and the beaches and the water, like coming from the desert where it doesn't rain. I would be standing outside when it's raining. (laughs) And the first thing I did is I got my driver's license, 10 years. I paid for 10 years' (laughs) driver's license, (laughs) my Aussie driver's license. I met myself for the first time in Australia. I looked at the mirror and I'm like, oh, this is who I am. A happy child who wants to live her life without anyone's permission, who wants to be herself without anyone's permission. And I realized I didn't live my life before. Because there was always all these expectations of me to fit in those roles, to fit in that box. And when I came to Australia, I didn't have all these chains. The chains are really not physical chains. The chains that we have as women are in our mind. The the angel in the room that keeps talking to you and putting you down and making you feel uh, less of a human just for being a woman or less intelligence for being a woman. I think that was the the best thing I went through coming to Australia. As a human rights activist, also, what worried me when I came here, it was the the refugees, because I call myself a self-imposed exile. I was lucky to come here as an immigrant. But that really scared me when I came to Australia, like why we have the refugee. There are around 100 women in 2019, it was reported, fled from Saudi Arabia to Australia. There are people like me who are fleeing for their safety, for their lives. And I appreciate Australia for taking me in. And I appreciate Australia for not asking me to cover my face or uncover my face. Just let me be, have my beliefs, my belief system, and, and just be a good citizen who can contribute to this country. The other thing is it was very difficult for an immigrant to find a job. But I found a lot of my friends who came here at my age, it was difficult to find a job. It took me like two years to land my first job. And um, I was just living on speaking and speaking and and my book. But what shocked me, to work in the corporate life in Australia, what shocked me is how men were talking to me. And I remember my first week in the job, I was a manager, in one of the big four. And the partner was talking with the director. And I was standing there with another director. And I was standing there. They gave, because when I applied, they said, oh, no, we don't have this position. So they gave me a lower position. And they brought someone with 10 years less experience than me in cybersecurity as my boss the same week I was hired. And we're talking about the client and they just, just took themselves and left the room while I'm talking. Yeah. And they had the meeting in the in the kitchen. And then my, the director would yell at me in front of the clients. And I'm sitting there and I'm like like, we're in a professional environment. No one ever yelled at me. And I mean, no one ever yelled at me at work. I was sitting there not believing. I was just like, I would take my laptop and go to the to the bathroom and cry. I couldn't believe this was happening to me. By the way, I was in jail. I didn't cry. I cried because of my director, because he was questioning my abilities. And six weeks later, I had to resign. One job after another. And then I I became a director in my recent position, which I also resigned from. And now I'm doing my own thing. You're sitting in the room with all directors. You're either interrupted, you're either mansplained, and I love this word because I learned it later after I left my job. You're either completely disregarded. Your opinion doesn't matter. I was I was the youngest, maybe 10 years between me and the rest. And I was talking down. Like if I come up with an idea, either ignored or talked down. And then when the other directors, I have to go and create my allies with the other directors out of the, the boardroom. And I talk them into accepting like what I'm, because I know what I'm doing. (laughs) I've worked in cybersecurity for 20 years, for God's sake. When they approve it in the meeting, that idea is approved or that decision is approved. But if I say it, it's ignored. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, inside Arabia, men would listen to me in the meeting. Actually, I was the the bossy one. When we sit in our uh, weekly division meeting, I would be the one Sitting next to the the division head, I could challenge people. I could boss people around if I wanted. I was just me. And I wasn't like put down. They would listen. And they were just like, good idea. Okay, so you're going to speak about this. How about you present this to the managers? And I love that environment. And I get shocked with this blocky environment in Australia. And I'm like, you know, sometimes Australian men can learn from Saudi men, one thing or another. Believe me, I said to the engineers, and I'm like, you should you should meet some Saudi engineers and learn how to respect a woman when she speaks. Because my accent and a brown person, I don't know what was it. I was told once that I, uh, it's my language, and I learned my language from Disney movies. So I, sometimes I speak like Timon and Bumba <laughs> from The Lion King. and I know, but I know what I'm talking about because in tech or in cyber, it's just the same thing. You're like, we don't have kangaroo firewalls and antiviruses here. It's the same thing, the same tick. So that was the revelation that I got here. And unfortunately, I really got angry. And I'm like, I don't think I want to channel my energy into anger. Because it's emotional labor to be sitting there, trying to make these people listen. And I'm like, I have priorities in my life. So as the head of security, I have these priorities to protect my employer. I don't want to deal with this BS. I don't want to be here. It's emotional labor to have to walk them through it, to have to talk them through it. And I'm like, just be professional.
1: Oh, I certainly, the words emotional labor, I think are a fantastic way of explaining this. It just takes so much extra energy that men in comparable circumstances don't need to put in. And when you're doing a job that is obviously huge and responsible, like being Prime Minister, that you are called upon to put in this extra emotional labour is very wearing. So I think you've named it really well. I do want to ask you, though, you are now working for yourself. You are recording a podcast, amongst many other things. Can you tell us where you are in your life right now? What are things like for you? So I use social media effectively to ignite movements in Saudi Arabia.
2: In 2018, my colleague, we used to write together for the Washington Post, and he was calling for freedom of speech in Saudi Arabia. Jamal Khashoggi was murdered brutally in the consulate of Saudi Arabia in Istanbul. And when I was monitoring Twitter, because I had around 300,000 followers on Twitter, I couldn't talk. I was hunted down at that time. All the activists went quiet when he was assassinated in October 2018. And because I'm a computer scientist, I do a lot of research. I look at statistics and numbers. And I monitor Twitter, and Twitter was taken away from us. It was a tool of oppression, from a tool of liberation, giving us our voice, to a tool of oppressing us. And that's when I decided to delete all my social media accounts, because I saw the world trend was played by... The trolls of the Saudi government at that time. I felt hopeless for years. So when I quit my job and I'm like, you know what? I shouldn't give up. We have something huge that we can change the world to the better for everyone. I'm writing a book about dark technology. Is how tech is now being abused. Those t- giants, how profit over humanity, democracy and the planet is really destroying our future, our kids' future. So I start, I'm writing a book, Dark Tech. I started the podcast, Tech for Evil, and I had to name it for evil because I want to talk to technologists and call them to the light. I want to talk to policymakers who are lousy and lazy and do want to update the digital laws here in Australia. Our Privacy Act is dated 1988, before the internet came to Australia. So those tech companies are taking advantage that it's unregulated, and they're just really creating mass destruction. Like imagine democracies suffered like Cambridge Analytica in the U- in the UK. Imagine people who are not living in democracies like me. We suffered the most. We suffered before you. That's why I started that. And I started the Ethical Technologist Society. And I'm trying to connect individuals because it's really scattered the effort to try to have a universal declaration of digital rights and to have a global ethical tech index where we hold those tick giants to account and, and, and just opening the door to everyone to be able to understand what these tech companies are doing.
1: And take action because it's so important to democracy, but also to women uh, that we address these issues with technology companies. Now, I'm going to come to the standard questions that I ask each of my guests. I always ask them to comment on a fact. And the fact for you is that according to data from UNESCO, only around 30% of female students select STEM-related fields in higher education. Globally, female students' enrolment is particularly low in ICT, 3%, natural science, mathematics and statistics, 5%, and in engineering, manufacturing and construction, 8%. 8%. What's your reaction to those figures? I'd say get inspired from
2: Saudi women. As I mentioned, 65 make the computer science. Get inspired from Indian women. Indian women over 60% study STEM, which is amazing. And it really starts from the school because in the school when the girls are brought up to think a certain way or to act a certain way, they would have a lot of interest in science, but they would lose that as they go before college. And that's the time you catch them. But a very important thing people need to know about STEM, the way it's taught today is so boring. And we women have high emotional intelligence. So it's like, no, no, I'm not going to study something boring. I'm actually going to study something very exciting, marketing, whatever the exciting things they make the majority in. I think it's just making it Lively. Science is all about creativity and critical thinking and and the beauty of
1: science. I think more women will join these professions. I think uh, that's very good advice. Now, what's the worst misogyny you've had to face? We've probably talked a bit about this, but could you summarize what's the worst misogyny you've faced in your life to date?
2: I think not to speak for myself when there's a man speaking on my behalf. And I thought when I left Saudi Arabia, I felt voiceless there. But when I was interrupted continuously in meetings, I thought I was voiceless there too. I think that's the most misogynist thing a woman can go through.
1: If you had all the power in the world, just for a moment, what would you change for women? If you could pick one thing and change it and snap your fingers and get it done, what would it be? i just let them see that we are connected it's not me,
2: it's not her, it's not a Aussie woman, Saudi woman. We're all into this together. I just make them see that. And I would just open a window where all the leaders in the world, are women, would be sitting in a salon, doing a manicure and pedicure and talking about peace, <laughs> prosperity, and having fun and joking. And we'd be not competing with each other, would be really there for each other. I think that's what I would... Give the world or the women to see, like a world where women are leaders. And as I mentioned, women really care about the prosperity for everyone. And we don't have those competition and backstabbing. And you will find those women who try to be like men, but you will find most of the women, they make the world
1: really a better place for everyone. I love it. Virginia Woolf, who you've mentioned, Virginia Wolf says, I will cut adrift. I will sit on pavements and drink coffee. I will dream. I will take my mind out of its iron cage and let it swim. Manal Al-Sharif says, I'd say the rain begins with a single drop. That's a very good statement. The rain begins with a single drop. Manal, thank you for this conversation. Thank
2: you for the time.
1: been listening to a podcast of one's own with julia gillard from the global institute for women's leadership at king's college london if you want to learn more about our work visit the global institute for women's leadership website and sign up to our updates this podcast has been produced by connie blafari and james miller with kings online with editing by nick hilton if you liked what you've been listening to we'd love it if you could rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider We're always looking for feedback and it really helps people to learn more about our work. And please join us next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.